Hi everyone and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. Now, if you listened through to the end of last week's episode, and I mean all the way through, you know that this week I'm not telling you a typical story about a typical case. I took last week off for a little recuperation, relaxation, and re-energizing. But like I said last week, I'm not leaving you hanging, especially not during what's about to be one of the stranger and more chaotic weeks in our country's history. Instead, I'm telling you a story. It's a story I've already told to my Patreon supporters. It's a mix of my usual research, a little more indulgent of the spook factor, and certainly some particular liberties of my own. This is, after all, supposed to be a scary story. If you like what you're hearing with this special kind of episode, I hope you'll give the DAW Patreon a gander and consider joining so you can also get extra exclusive content like the story I'm about to tell you. It's a story that I think is the OG American horror story. No, I'm not talking about the 2016 election. No, this story revolves around the question of what happened to the lost colony of Roanoke. My personal favorite cases to cover will always be disappearances because we live in a day and age where we have the answer to so many hashtag questions at the tips of our fingers, literally and figuratively. And yet, somehow, disappearances still happen somewhat regularly, and we're left wondering, speculating, theorizing, all in the vein of trying to comfort ourselves with answers to the things that seem impossible to have happened. We're still wondering where Maura Murray could be all of these years later. How did Lauren's spirit seemingly vanish from her little college town on streets riddled with surveillance cameras? We still don't know what exactly happened to Kyron Horman, the first grader who simply disappeared while on the grounds of his elementary school, surrounded by adults, teachers, and his fellow students. And seriously, where the fuck is Malaysia Flight 370? All that said, there's something even more distinctly chilling about what happened to Roanoke over 400 years ago. Those 115 souls left behind their governor. story of the lost colony of Roanoke, I need to start with the first attempt that was made to colonize Roanoke. There are a few men at the helm of this mystery, which shouldn't shock anyone given both the failures and fuckery that abounds from it. First and foremost, let me introduce you to Sir Walter Raleigh. Raleigh was something of the Disney Corporation of the 1500s, if he could have his name on something and be the man behind the curtain running even the smallest of shows, he was doing it. Instead of inexplicably owning way more networks, shows, and trademarks than you can begin to comprehend, though, Raleigh's sweet spot? That was land. Discovering it and claiming it, staking his name against it for that ever-eternal glory white men seemed so desperate to chase after in ye olden days. 
So, when Queen Elizabeth I charged him on March 25th, 1584 to, quote, discover, search, find out, and view such remote heathen and barbarous lands, countries, and territories to have, hold, occupy, and enjoy in the so-called New World, Raleigh hopped to it. The first expedition he deployed left England barely a month later, which is a super fast turnaround time for the 1500s when you think about it, and they departed on April 27th, 1584. They made landfall in the area that we now know as the Outer Banks in North Carolina on July 13th of that same year. A few interesting things to note here already. The reason that Raleigh was so hellbent and determined to kick this thing off so fast by the legalese of his charter with QE1, he only had five years to fully establish a colony in this brave new world, or else he'd lose the charter. And there too would go that glory, fame, and whatnot that he was so obsessed with. Raleigh was willing to do anything to make his claim for these new lands and whatever he discovered in them, which we'll come to see even more to the forefront of things in just a little bit. Also, even though Raleigh had been given all of this power with his charter from the queen, he actually never participated in any of these expeditions. Again, by the legalese of this charter, Raleigh was straight up forbidden from leaving the queen's side. So all of these expeditions, Raleigh was basically some far away overseeing all of this yet doing nothing of the work himself guy. Like I said, lots of fuckery abounds here because, well, men. The first voyage over to the New World was merely just to check things out, get a lay of the land, and then zip back to England to start a real expedition with the intent to colonize. So when what's known now as the Amadis Barlow expedition made landfall on this first journey, they immediately encountered one of the local Native American tribes. I don't think anybody expected it to go as well as it did. This tribe that the English explorers met with was the Secatan tribe, and they actually established, quote, friendly relations with them on this first go-round. The chief of the tribe, Wingaina, had actually recently been injured in a skirmish with another local tribe, the Pamlico. So his brother, Granginimio, actually acted in his place when meeting with these particular Englishmen, which is something to remember for the future. In fact, the meetings and relations with the local tribes were so positive, two members actually returned to England just a few months later in the fall. These two native tribesmen were Ranchesi, a Secatan tribesman, and Manteo, whose mother was the chieftain of the Croatoan island. Upon arriving back in England, the expedition spoke highly of how hospitable the local tribes were and what a strategic location that Roanoke was, as the island that they had landed on was called. QE1 was, by all accounts, very impressed. So impressed that she gave Raleigh the go-ahead to kickstart another expedition, this time with the intent to colonize this land that she had named Virginia. She also knighted Raleigh and dubbed him, quote, Knight Lord and Governor of Virginia, despite, you know, him not actually doing anything at all. But who cares about such silly details? Because Raleigh certainly didn't. 
He was in this to win this. So in the spring of 1585, the next crew, designed to be more of a military expedition with Sir Richard Grenville leading and Ralph Lane acting as the new colony's governor, do not ask me how this jived with Raleigh being the governor of Virginia. I truly lost my mind researching these nuances. The 1500s was the true Wild West. With all this on the horizon, they all set sail across the seas back to Roanoke. What would become known as Lane's attempt to colonize, attempt, keyword here, this crew arrived to the Outer Banks in Roanoke in mid-June of 1585. And grace God, were they happy to see land. They had had a rough voyage with a large amount of their supplies being lost, as well as one of their ships being wrecked. With so much of their necessary supplies lost and increasing fears of Spanish attacks, England and Spain were pissed at each other at the time. That's all you really need to know. Grenville decided that only 100 of the 600 men on this military expedition could safely stay on Roanoke, while the rest would return to England to restock. So, though Lane was the governor, Grenville seemed to have way more power and sway over how things ran with this particular expedition. Both men stayed behind with 100 other men to wait for the for supply mission, and from the jump, Grenville was kind of a dick. This crew was full of swarthy military types, as the mission for this expedition was to conduct military recon to check out the land even more diligently than the Amatis Barlow crew had. That recon was comprised of taking stock of the land, learning about what the available natural resources were, and meeting with local tribes. And why does this sound like an elementary school social science lesson? And I swear it's not, so just stick with me. Because they were so short on supplies, this put the expedition in a position where they would have to rely heavily on the local natives and their generosity. And it's clear that Grenville fully intended to take advantage of that, thanks to the hospitality that the first expedition had spoken so highly of. Manteo had returned to Roanoke with this group for Lane's colony, and Grenville used this connection to the local tribes to his fullest extent, especially during meetings. After one such meeting with Secotan tribes people in their village of Aquascogog, a silver cup was reported to be missing. And after much, read, probably none, searching, Grenville sent men back to the village to demand that the native people return what they had so clearly stolen. These particular Secotans couldn't and didn't produce the cup, probably because they didn't fucking steal it. And I quote, The English decided that severe retribution was necessary in order to avoid the appearance of weakness. Thus, they burnt down the entire village and destroyed all the tribe's crops because how else are you going to flex on the very people that you actually need helping you to survive the fall and winter in a land that you know nothing about? Needless to say, by the time spring rolled around, everyone hated everyone. The lack of food had left many dead or near starving, and a disease no doubt brought over by the English had barreled through the Roanoke Island, had weakened and killed several Secotan, many of who actually thought the disease was some supernatural force that the English had unleashed on them. Wingaina, the chief, he had fallen ill himself, though he recovered. However, his brother Granginimio, who had been such an advocate for the English at the front, 
he was dead of the same disease. And it's said that this tragedy is what led Wingina to finally turn fully against the English. He'd been suspicious of them from the start, but this was, as they say, the final nail in the coffin. In a move that seems steeped in foreshadowing, Wingina actually renamed himself to Pemisipan, which means one who watches. And he began to formulate his plans against the English. He was a sneaky sneak strategist, Pemisipan. He warned other tribes against helping the English and even set up the settlers against a rival tribe, the Choanoke, where Lane, heading up an, an exploratory party for one, realized what was afoot and captured the tribal leader and held his son for ransom. Despite Pamisapon's plans, it had to be noted that the balance of powers and the chosen loyalties throughout the area, they were shifting. Word began spreading that another tribe's leader had sworn fealty to QE1 and Raleigh, which made Pamisapon pause and consider his initial plan of forming a war council with other local tribes. When Ensignore, a senior advisor to Pamisapon and an advocate for the English like Granginimio had been, when he died, however, and he was replaced with Wanchese, a secatan who had long spoken against the English because he saw them only as a threat, Pamisapon's mind was made up. Late in the spring of 1586, he began to plan his attack against the English, gathering other local tribes to his side. However, in the words of Hamilton, the English, they had a spy on the inside. Skiko, the Choanoke chief's son that Lane was still holding ransom. He let slip to the English Pamisapon's plan, which led Grenville and Lane to partake in their own sabotage strategery. They told Pamisapon that a British fleet had arrived, hoping to spook Pamisapon away from his plan to attack them. Instead, they only forced his hand into early action. On May 31st, 1586, local tribes gathered at another village, Dasamangwe Ponke, to discuss what to do about their English problem. That night, Lane ordered his men to attack the tribal warriors who had remained on Roanoke, and as the day broke on June 1st, Lane arrived with a group of his men under the guise of discussing a potential trade of Skiko back to his people. Instead, upon their arrival, Lane gave the signal. In the unexpected uproar, Pamisapon was shot but managed to flee until some of Lane's men tracked him through the forest and returned to the village, his bloody head a sign of what they saw as their victory. They impaled it on a pike just outside their fort, which big dick English energy all the way around. By this time, they had made contact with an English fleet, that of Sir Francis Drake. So they hadn't been entirely kidding when the English told Pamisapon that a fleet was arriving. Lane ordered the men to evacuate and along with Manteo again and one of his associates, Tawaye, they boarded Drake's ships bound back to Mother England. Three of those from Lane's colony, though, they were left behind, and they were never heard from again. The rest, they arrived back in London in July of 1586. They had lasted barely a year. The first attempt to colonize Roanoke had failed. Despite the nightmare that had been Lane's attempt to colonize Roanoke, Sir Walter Raleigh was back in the saddle and ready for round two, 
almost as soon as the near-starving, terrified men arrived back in England. One would think that he'd give pause to the idea, given the absolute bloodshed that they had just left in their wake, but oh no. That wasn't Raleigh's style, especially since his charter's clock was ticking and he needed a colony settled over there now. Raleigh, claiming that since they knew Roanoke wasn't safe, he said that this new colony would attempt to settle in an area known as Chesapeake Bay. And this colony wouldn't have the military bent that the first had had. Instead, the 115 people making up this colony would be focused on creating the idyllic colony and it would include women, children, including Eleanor Dare, the very pregnant daughter of the man who would be leading this new expedition, John White. Minteo and Toaye also joined this group, serving as some form of liaison for the English once again. So it was on July 22, 1587, the second round of Raleigh's dream to colonize began with this group of individuals who would come to be known as the Lost Colony and they landed on Croatoan Island. They intended to visit with 15 men who had been stationed back at Roanoke on orders from Grenville and then continue on to Chesapeake Bay. But that never happened. Instead, it said that, quote, a gentleman aboard the flagship, the main ship the lost colonists came over on, gave the order to, quote, leave the settlers at Roanoke. And it seems the settlers didn't know that that would be their fate. On July 23rd, the group of settlers who had joined White to contact the 15 men remaining on Roanoke arrived, and they found only remnants of the colony. The fort was dismantled, overgrown with vegetation, and absolutely vacant. There was no sign of the men ever having been there, except for human bones. Things only got stranger and more unsettling from there. On July 25th, the rest of the 115 settlers disembarked and officially began their attempts to colonize Roanoke. George Howe, one of the settlers, found himself searching for crabs along the Sound's shores that same day, and his body was found just hours later. His head had been, quote, beaten to pieces. He had been struck 16 times with arrows, and his body indicated that he had also been beaten with some sort of club. Things, obviously, were off to a great start. Immediately, White knew that they had to reestablish relations with the local tribes, and he utilized Manteo to help negotiate some sort of truce. Through Manteo, they learned the terrifying truth that they had guessed at. The men who had been left behind to stand a century at Roanoke had been killed. But by an anti-English coalition that Wanchese, Pamisapon's ever-distrustful advisor, had formed with other tribes from the mainland. Throughout the summer, attempts were made to come to some sort of peaceful understanding with the Croatoan tribe that they were currently sharing Roanoke with in the hope for both an alliance and protection from this anti-English coalition. Despite all of the English endeavors and with Manteo's help, every time they tried to reach out to the Croatoan, they were met only with silence. On August 9th, White had cracked, much like Gretchen Wieners, and decided to say fuck it all, and it attacked the area that they believed this coalition of anti-English natives were. Except, what do you know, the coalition wasn't there, and instead it was filled with Croatoans who already were on the fence of not trusting them. 
things felt to be spiraling out of control and fear continued pervading throughout Roanoke, even in spite of the joyful event of White's daughter Eleanor giving birth to a daughter, Virginia Dare, the first settler to be born in the colony. Three weeks after the fiasco against the Croatoans on August 27th, 1587, White made the decision to join the fleet that had brought them to Roanoke on their journey back to England. The Roanoke colonists had been left to the wolves, so they felt, and the fear that they lived with was all-consuming. Before he left, though, White gave instructions to the settlers who stayed behind. Should they have to leave Roanoke while he was gone, he told them to leave him a signal, some sort of sign of where they had escaped to. And if they left Roanoke in distress, they were to leave a Maltese cross alongside the secret message signal as well. What White and the 115 people he left behind, including his newborn granddaughter, what they didn't know was that he wouldn't return to Roanoke until 1590, three years later. It wasn't until August 12th, 1590, that John White saw the shores near Roanoke Island again. By the time that White returned to England, England was in a full-blown skirmish with Spain, and Elizabeth had refused any ship to leave the country in order to prepare for the coming Spanish Armada. After three long years, White had finally wrangled himself a spot on a privateering expedition. The expedition planned to raid Spanish outposts in the Caribbean throughout the summer, but two of the ships in the fleet were duty-bound to bring White back over to Roanoke to rejoin the colony. And so it was on August 12th that White arrived at the northern tip of Croatoan Island. And why, on the third day of being anchored there on August 15th, he could even see plumes of smoke rising from the island that he knew to be Roanoke. For whatever reason, though, White never got off the ship. They instead remained anchored near Croatoan Island, but never actually went on to it. It took them two days to maneuver the rocky Pamlico Sound, and then on August 17th, they saw even more smoke rising from their destination. They attempted to take a rowboat ashore, but by the time that they made it close enough to the island, it was too dark and too dangerous to risk. Instead, they spent the night singing English songs in the hopes that their friends and family could hear them and know that they were coming. The next morning, August 18th, 1590, Virginia Dare's third birthday as it happened, John White finally arrived back to Roanoke Island, and it was completely deserted. It was silent, save for the sound of the waves crashing, trees rustling. White and his men tried to make sense of the scene that they discovered before them. There were fresh tracks on the sand, but no sign of life otherwise. Instead of the small houses that had cropped up on their settlement, all of the houses had been completely dismantled, not even abandoned, literally taken apart piece by piece. And a new sort of fortress almost stood in its stead. What was its purpose? Why was this fortress here? What did the colonists need to have protected themselves from? There were no household remains either. Anything that could have been carried or spirited away was. Trunks that had been buried to hold others' belongings, too, including three of John White's own. They had been dug up, their contents taken, and then abandoned. The only thing stranger than the sight of what remained of Roanoke were two carvings that White found that were new. 
one on a tree of no real significance, and another carving on a post near the new fortress's entrance. The first was just three letters. C-R-O. The second, it was one word. Croatoan. Now, White couldn't ascertain what the fuck was going on with Roanoke, so he decided that next day, he would return to Croatoan Island instead to search for the colonists that he had left behind three years ago. But he never made it to Croatoan Island. That same night, one of the ships that had broken off from the privateering expedition to sail to Roanoke lost one of its anchors in a freak accident. This left the little fleet alone and in a risky position, since the second ship that had seen them to Roanoke had already departed back to join the fleet. There was no way the one anchor down Hopewell could, in good faith, keep their promise to wait that they would stay at Croatoan for an undetermined amount of time without one of their anchors. It was a death wish and a shipwreck wish. So instead, they made a compromise. They would all rejoin the fleet in the Caribbean, spend the winter there, and then return in the spring. His hands tied, White could do nothing but agree, and they left that night. The Hopewell was blown off course in their quest to rejoin their fleet, and instead, they were forced to return all the way back to England, where they arrived in October of 1590. John White would never see Roanoke, his family, or Little Virginia ever again. And we can lay part of the reason for that squarely at the feet of our favorite, Sir Walter Raleigh. Upon discovering the deserted, desolate remains of Roanoke, White sent a letter off to Raleigh explaining what he had found and his intent to return to Croatoan the next day. However, his letter made it to Raleigh before White's own unforeseen return to England, by which time White was terrified about what had happened to the people of Roanoke. Instead of sharing his worry, Raleigh more or less played the game of plausible deniability all in the name of keeping his perceived glory of colonizing. So long as the settlers weren't legally proven dead, he could keep his claim to the land. So Raleigh, he essentially ignored White's letter and carried on with his plausible deniability. So much so, when he claimed in 1595 that he was returning back to Roanoke to search for them, it was actually just a cover-up because what he was really searching for was fucking El Dorado. He actually, and this isn't a joke, this is fact, he sailed right past the Outer Banks on his way back to England after his failed El Dorado quest, and he made no move or mention to ever stop to see what became of the 115 souls. Raleigh, though, he got his due in the end. In 1603, he was arrested for treason against King James I for his involvement with the main plot, which effectively ended his charter and his claims on Virginia. He was imprisoned in the infamous Tower of London for several years, and eventually, he was beheaded. Good night, not-so-sweet prince. There were a handful of other people who made attempts to find answers about what happened to the lost colonists. Likewise, in 1603, a Bartholomew Gilbert made plans to seek out the colonists, but instead of landing near Chesapeake Bay like he and his crew intended, 
Bad weather blew them off course, much like John White had been back in 1590. Instead, they ended up landing in a, quote, undisclosed location near there. On July 29th, Gilbert and a small crew arrived on land, but they never made it back to their boat. They were found slaughtered by a rescue crew some days later, and the reason why has never been discovered. Infamous John Smith of Jamestown, William Strachey, and a Samuel Purchase all also made attempts to discover what happened to the colonists of Roanoke, but to no avail. Years went by, and in 1701, over a hundred years after John White's terrifying discovery of what remained in Roanoke, a man by the name of John Lawson made the first attempt to investigate the actual island of Roanoke since White. The original area where these attempts at colonization had taken place had changed since then. The very inlet that White had initially landed on, known as Hatterask, had now shifted so much that its path to Croatoan was closed, and it is now what we know as Hatteras Island. And what John Lawson discovered when he arrived was almost as astonishing as White's discovery. Among the native population, he found that certain tribespeople had shades of blonde hair. Some had startlingly light eyes to the point of being gray. The remains of a fort were scattered over the land, and the influence of an English culture stood out amongst the native traditions. Had Roanoke disappeared, or had it dissolved? It's here we have to ask ourselves, what the hell happened on Roanoke Island? As one historian so colorfully put it, the lost colony of Roanoke is the Area 51 of colonial history, and honestly, <laughs> that's true. The theories of what mysteries lie still just beneath the surface of Roanoke Island are innumerable. John Lawson's encounter with these pale-headed, light-eyed natives sparked the theory that the lost colonists, driven out of their colony by whatever means, instead assimilated and were adopted into the various local tribes of the nearby islands or even on the mainland. Some of these anomalous natives even retained forms of English names, which Lawson couldn't explain. But the question becomes, what tribe took them in? Their group of 115 was too large, it would have overwhelmed any tribe. So did the colonists force themselves into smaller groups and disband in order to survive? It's a possibility. Or had their relations with the local tribes ended instead of in peace, but in death? It's no secret that the tribes held a lot of hostility towards Englishmen, given the volatile relationship that they had with the Lane expedition. You know, the one where they ambushed and murdered their chief, held another chief's son as ransom, that one. Settlers from the later Jamestown expedition heard tales of the lost colonists being murdered by the Powhatan tribe. Or had the patience of the Seconden tribe run out first. Another theory is that in a fit of desperation at their increasingly dire situation, the abandoned colonists decided to use the small boat left to them in an attempt to return to England. White did note that none of the boats they had left the colonists with could be found, so maybe they did try to make an escape. The boat that they had been left could feasibly have gotten them back with those skilled enough to guide it, but that was a hell of a long shot and almost certain death. Had those who attempted to make their way back across the sea done so, 
but met their fate at the bottom of the Atlantic instead. Also, the Penas, which is the boat that they were left, it wasn't large enough to take all 115 colonists. So what happened to those who remained? Was the abandonment of the lost colonists all part of conspiracy against Sir Walter Raleigh? There are those who posit that one of Queen Elizabeth's closest advisors, Sir Francis Walsingham, had it out so much for Raleigh, he was willing to let 115 English citizens die just to see him fail. The theory goes that Walsingham used the Spanish Armada as the continued reason that they wouldn't let White go back to Roanoke and rescue the colonists in a timely fashion, thus endangering those 115 to certain starvation or death by one of the local tribes. Murdering citizens of the crown by means of reveling in a personal grudge is a hell of a thing for a royal advisor to do, so it wouldn't be much of a stretch to imagine that remaining a crown secret for centuries. Or had the colonists met a more dismal, bloodier fate? The Spanish had already laid claim to parts of the East Coast by the time Roanoke tried to make its start, and they knew of England's intent to colonize. Enough so, the Spanish were actively looking for these communities up and down the East Coast. Had the lost colonists actually been found by Spanish enemies? It would be possible, if not for the fact that by 1600, the Spanish were still looking for the colonists. So this theory can be debunked pretty quickly. Most curious and infamous of the theories revolves around things that White discovered. And one of them was discovered later, a map by White himself. Hidden markings were found underneath a paper patch that he had applied to a map that he made. Underneath the patch were red and blue markings that, quite literally, formed a bit of an X. The colonists had made it clear that they wanted to leave Roanoke and move further to the mainland, 50 miles to be exact, as White's writings would later showcase. Had they done it in his absence? Did this, this site X, actually mark the spot? We can't say because no sign of the lost colonists has ever been found in that location. And of course, the biggest possible clue also holds the biggest questions. Croatoan. Why? Why a Croatoan? Did that tribe know what happened? Or had they been the reason for this inexplicable disappearance? Or was this clue even talking about the Croatoan people at all? Because... For whatever reason, this hastily carved phrase or word or whatever it stands for, it's been linked to disappearances not just over the years after Roanoke's colonists vanished. It's been linked to disappearances for centuries. In just one instance, in 1849, Edgar Allan Poe disappeared during a trip from Virginia that was destined to arrive in Philadelphia, except he never made it to the city of brotherly love. Instead, Poe was found incoherent and delirious in the streets, actually in a literal gutter to be more precise, of Baltimore, wearing clothes that weren't his own in a state that could only be described as worse for wear and babbling nonsensically. His final days were spent in fits of delirium racked by visual hallucinations, and he never became coherent enough to explain how he came to be in Baltimore, or what had happened to him. 
He was pronounced dead on October 7th, 1849, though the cause of his death was never been able to be ascertained and his medical records mysteriously went missing. The last thing he ever said before sinking into a final and fatal bout of unconsciousness said to have been Croatoan. In 1920, the Carol A. Deering ship was sailing from Puerto Rico to Rio de Janeiro. After making their delivery of coal in Rio, they were destined to Hampton Roads in the Virginia, North Carolina coastal area. The ship left Rio on December 2nd, 1920, and collected supplies in Barbados close to the new year of 1921. They were then seen on January 28th, 1921, by the Cape Lookout Lightship, Lightship Keeper. He could see a tall, thin man with reddish hair who he assumed was the captain because he used a loudspeaker from his stance on the deck to call out to the lightship keeper, explaining that they had lost their anchors in a storm. And would he please let the ship's owner's G.G. Deering Company know? The lightship keeper made a note of it, but never sent the message. He also made a note of how oddly the crew he could see on board was acting. They were, quote, milling about on the quarter deck, which was an area that crew normally wasn't allowed in. He couldn't make heads nor tails of it. The next afternoon, another vessel saw the carol, but what they didn't see was any crew member on the deck. This vessel assumed that the carol was sailing for Cape Hatteras, as that was the direction that they were headed in. Hatteras, the old inlet that had fused the original Croatoan island. There, it was an area that the other vessel was none too keen to travel. This particular area was known as the Graveyard of the Atlantic. So they assumed, or at least hoped, that the crew, though they saw none of them, knew how to avoid the dangers of its waters. On January 31st, 1921, a young lookout from the lighthouse at the Coast Guard station of Cape Hatteras discovered a disturbing sight. All sails still set, seeming for all the world to never have stopped. The Carol A. Deering was wrecked, aground against the diamond shoals of Hatteras Island. The Coast Guard couldn't board the wreck until February 4th due to storms. And when they did, they grew even more disturbed. Not a soul remained on board. It was a ghost ship. The Coast Guard tried to make sense of what they were seeing as they made their way onto the depths of the Carol. The wheel had been shattered, the ship's log and reports were missing, and even food remained that looked like as if it was in the process of being prepared for a meal. The Coast Guard quickly deemed the wreck a hazard and it was destroyed with explosives one month later on March 4th. In the course of their investigation on board, they did notice two lifeboats were missing. Had the crew abandoned ship? But why? What could have caused so much destruction on board? Where did they go? No one can say for sure, but what is certain, no sign of the lifeboats or of any long drowned bodies were ever found. But if the Coast Guard had looked a little more closely, a bit more carefully at the time, they might have noticed the carving of Croatoan etched into one of the masts of the Carol A. Deering. And even in 1937, almost 350 years after it was first discovered, violently scrawled into a wood post, Croatoan made yet another appearance in the midst of another disappearance. 
there in the last page of her diary that was discovered just days after she vanished without a word written by her own hand, Amelia Earhart had written Croatoan. No one has ever unearthed the reason why. But so many years later, before, those exact 350 years prior to the discovery, Amelia Earhart knew of the power of Croatoan. Whispers throughout the Roanoke area told the tale of the Croatoan island. A tale that the island itself was a spirit that could transform those who offended it. Maybe the lost colonists weren't really lost at all. Maybe they've just never been found because they never actually left. I'll leave you with just one thought. Croatoan. Thanks for listening, friends. Hopefully this is the only scary story you hear this week. Rate, review, and please, God, don't forget to vote. I'll catch you here next week, ready to get dark as hell as usual and all over again. Yeah.